We have uh, Dr. Arnold with us from Phoenix Seminary, and uh, I don't know if I've told you, I've been really encouraged by a number of professors who come on staff at Phoenix Seminary as of late. Uh, you have Dr. Brian Arnold, and you're teaching in systematics? In church history. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, and then we also have Dr. John Mead, uh, John Del Husay, who you met last night, and of course Wayne Grudem and, and, and others, so we're just encouraged by that. So good to have you, brother. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, asked uh, Brian, actually, yesterday we'd had some questions from a number of you um, about the, the four views, and uh, because there were so many questions, I thought maybe it'd be helpful to have a, a systematics church history guy uh, just run through those for us real quick before we get started, uh, and then we'll start answering some of the great questions that you guys have asked. Uh, so, Brian, you want to unfold that for us? Yeah, sure. Um, what you've gotten, I think, from, from Dr. Beal and Dr. Schreiner very well is a lot of the, uh, the trees in the forest of, of specific passages and, and getting some of the density there, which has been fabulous. Um, but I, I think for a lot of you, maybe, you've not seen the big, broad forest of how Revelation is interpreted. Um, and, and I kind of want to do two things, like four views on the book of Revelation, like how that can be understood, and then how the millennium, the four views of the millennium. And, and I'll try to be at least Beal brief. So uh, taking a, a page from your notebook. So if it doesn't feel brief, it's Beal brief. Okay. Um, there's four main views on the book of Revelation, how we can go about understanding that. Uh, there's the preterist view, and the preterist view means these things are kind of done in the past. So a lot of times preterists will view uh, the dating of the book of Revelation to about AD 70 with the destruction, or just right before that, and, and prophesying the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And so everything's done. And you can, you can see where they get some impetus for this with uh, Jesus even saying things like, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. And so they, they see that and say, well, in order to take Jesus at his word, these things have to have been done in the past. There's historicism, which means each kind of section of the book of Revelation, maybe even the seven churches, represent a different um, stage in church history. So I can remember being an eight-year-old at Bible camp and a, uh, a speaker coming in and saying, you know, we are now in the church of Laodicea. And yeah, that's right. Oh, my word. That's how I felt. Uh, There's the futurism view, which um, probably a lot of you hold, that these are things that will happen in uh, the future. And then there's idealism. And I I wonder, Tom, if that's, do you kind of, I feel like what you were doing yesterday kind of has that idealist approach with, with these are things that have happened throughout church history. They're they're always going to happen. This is just the ebb and flow of, of history. Yeah, well, I, I think there's, I would just say, I think there's truth in parts of the preterist view and the futurist view. But if I were to choose of those four, I, I would put myself an idealist. Okay. Yeah. Very good. All right. And then, then uh, so that, that, those are just kind of the four main, like, how do you even approach this strange book we call Revelation? Um, and, and the thing that people all want to know, and I think this is why Josh probably started here yesterday, is the thing that really creates a lot of um, heat is the views in the millennium. And uh, Doug Wilson, at the event that, that Tom talked about last night, the, the Night of Eschatology, it's a great resource for you to look at. You can find it on Desiring God or YouTube or something. Um, Doug Wilson, in his classic humor, said, the uh, millennial reign is a thousand years of peace, which Christians love to fight about. And I think that's a pretty <laughs> apt description of, of that. So hopefully you've at least received uh, one of these 
pretty helpful handouts that kind of briefly sketch these four main positions. And I like how these are laid out because that's the order I'd want to take them in because I I think this is the order uh, that they've kind of appeared throughout history as well. So you see the historic premillennial view there. Uh, Irenaeus is the first one who lived, flourished around 180 AD. And he held this view. And, And what's interesting about Irenaeus is Irenaeus was discipled by Polycarp, who's discipled by John. So you can almost imagine, I think, maybe some fireside chats happening where John's explaining Revelation uh, to Polycarp, and then Irenaeus is, is hearing this. Now, you don't want to put too much stock in that. I think Dr. Beale would probably have <laughs> would not want to put too much emphasis on Irenaeus' view, but that's where we get the, the view that's pretty... Um, well held throughout the history of the church, the historic premillennial view there. And so what you see is the church age, it kind of ends with the tribulation, second coming, thousand year, which doesn't have to be interpreted literally, uh, millennial kingdom, judgment, eternal state. The amillennial view, um, which actually pretty much came into existence, I think, with Augustine, even though uh, you pointed out Charles Hill's book yesterday, uh, which I think is a good resource. Um, I, can't, I think it came into being in Revelation 20. <laughs> Just like John was the first Baptist, isn't it, right? <laughs> There's no doubt. <laughs> you mean Jesus was the first? John the Baptist, right? Yeah. 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 You mean the first Pato Baptist? <laughs> <laughs> Next year. No. Uh, We're happy both to come back and talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> So the amillennial view is, is kind of like the, there's not the millennial view that has typically been understood in uh, Revelation chapter 20. Uh, the church age, the kingdom with tribulations kind of all throughout, like, like we saw, that these are things that are constantly reoccurring. Um, second coming, judgment, eternal state. So it's not like Jesus is going to come back, there's going to be this thousand year period, and then we go into the eternal state. When Jesus comes back, we go into the eternal state. Uh, the post-millennial view, um, this, this just holds that things get better and better and better, and, and the gospel continues to flourish as it goes out. You can see this even in Jesus' parables. I don't think they're coming from left field when they get this, that like a mustard seed goes in, it's small, it grows up and, and blossoms, um, or like a little leaven works through the whole lump. You, you have this idea that, that the gospel is going forth, that it is producing, and eventually it's going to do um, kind of take over the world, if you will. That died with World War I, pretty much. So there was so much death, so much tragedy. It was hard to believe that the world was actually becoming a better place, even though in the last few years, people like Doug Wilson and others have kind of revived that view. And then you have the dispensational premillennial view. I don't know about uh, you all. I'm not from Phoenix, but for where I'm from, this is kind of you're born into this kind of tradition. Um, I don't know what your guys' experience has been teaching at seminaries of the last couple decades, but this is kind of a default position, I think. Um, we, we call it like left-behind eschatology. So you remember those books that came out um, kind of teaching this? It's relatively an infant in church history, this idea. So J.N.D. Darby, um, most uh, kind of explain this view in the mid-19th century. Um, so you have the church age, the rapture, escape from the tribulation. After the tribulation, Jesus comes again. I'm not sure if that's like a third coming or not. I, I know some people critique it for that. Uh, millennial kingdom, judgment, eternal state. 
So th- those are pretty much the views. I, I tend to think that it's, it's wishful thinking that God will rescue us from this tribulation when he's promised that the church is going to flourish because of tribulation. So one of the things that I think made the early church sparkle was the way they endured. So Tertullian would say the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I think one of the reasons why we see the church grow so rapidly early is because of tribulation. So I don't think we'd want to see God remove the church when, when he's called the church into that so often. So, anyway. Thank you very much. That was a helpful overview of some of the things we were talking about yesterday. Um, well, moving on, uh, what about the, the mark of the beast and 666? I think anytime you have a Revelation conference, somebody wants to know about that. Uh, Tom Schreiner, how do you uh, view those? Um, how would you explain them? Well, I, I was hoping you'd ask Greg that question first. That's why I asked you. He's right next to you. Okay. <laughs> um, Honestly, I have not invested a lot of time into the 666, which is why I was hoping you'd ask Greg. <laughs> but I lean towards it, meaning it's 777 would be the perfect number. 666 would not designate an individual person like a Nero Caesar, but uh, it would uh, designate that, that which is the kingdom of man over against who God is. So it'd be a demonic kingdom, so to speak. So that that's where I lean, but I don't have much more to say than that. Dr. Bill? Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> in fact, when it says it's a number of a man, it makes you think of an individual like Nero, which many think it is. You could equally, and I think perhaps better translate it, the number of mankind which then uh, 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 makes it more consistent with the number 666. It's just an infinite, no matter how much the devil and his agent, the beast, and those who follow him attempt to find meaning in their power, meaning in their life, they just go 666. It's incomplete. See, the sixth day of creation was the the creation of humanity, and uh, creation wasn't over. You had to have the seventh day of rest. They can never achieve the seventh day of rest. Now, it also says, I think what also indicates that this is not literal, is that chapter 13 says the following. It says, um, here is wisdom, 13.18. Here is wisdom, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, or of mankind. His number is 666. Well, do we have to be a math genius to be able to calculate this. I think that it, I don't think so. The idea of calculation is really explained by the first phrase in verse 18. Here is wisdom. That is, if you're a wise person close to the Lord, knowing his word, you'll be able figuratively to calculate. Uh, That is, to identify who represents the beast in any particular age, and at the end of the age, who the beast will be, because I do believe in a final literal coming, literal, that is of a physical antichrist. And this statement, uh, here's wisdom, calculate, has already been anticipated in chapter 13 and verse 9, where it says this, he who has an ear, let him hear. That has to do with understanding, as we saw last night, spiritual realities and not being a part of the hardened clump. For those who don't have ears, cannot hear. Now, there was an insignificant uh, fact that I found in my study. 
but I'm not sure it's so insignificant. In 1 Kings 11, it narrates Solomon's rise and demise, 10 and 11. And I think it's in 11 that says at the peak of his career that 666 pounds of gold came into his reign, and uh, came in under his reign. And if you notice, this context in chapter 13 is all about economics, not being able to buy or sell, right? Unless you're giving allegiance to the powers that be of the beast. <clears throat> Solomon was the epitome of the king in Israel, the most prosperous, and his demise was probably the most remarkable in that regard. So there may be this, this economic number uh, about gold could be faintly in the background um, as, as well as it relates to the leaders of the world gone wrong and demanding that people follow what they say. Those are just some observations. I do have a lot more to say in my commentary at that point. So Dr. Yeah. Bill, do people need to be worried about microchip implants in their hands and things like that? Well, again, you know, it's sort of like uh, all those who see the witnesses being killed worldwide. Is that through technological television uh, equipment? Uh, I don't think so. I think it's because it refers to the church worldwide and everybody, therefore, the unbelievers will see them. And so uh, it's hard for me to believe all things are possible. <laughs> I mean, that may not, uh, definitely wasn't in John's mind, but could it be in God's mind? It's possible. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's probable because God is communicating to his people uh, in, in a language and in ways that uh, um, they understand. Um, certainly there's always a fuller understanding later. But here's a key point. Many people to understand the book of Revelation want to look at what's going on now and what they think is going on in the future. For example, in chapter 9 it talks about these locusts that have the faces of men, hair, Whirling around, and loud noise, and stingers in the tails, and some identify that. Some commentators in Revelation identify that as war helicopters, shooting uh, uh, machine guns out the tail, faces in the cockpits, the hair, is, uh, are the blades of the helicopter. And uh, I, I think this is a good example of um, really trying to make sense of the text from the present day and the imminent future of what's expected from our, our perspective, yeah. instead of going back, the first thing you do is not go to the present and the future to understand Revelation. You go back. Those are illusions. Even uh, to the locust, to Joel, to Exodus, you go back and you, you go back first. Understand the image. in It's Old Testament context. Then you come back. See how that informs the text? And then you say, okay, how does this relate to the present and the future? So rather than going to the future, go back first. You know, um, both of you in your talks, you spoke a great deal about suffering and tribulation mm-hmm. and um, really appreciated some of the pastoral exhortations. I was curious, as you look at the different ways people view the tribulation, uh, you have some that, you know, have believed that Christians would be removed from it through a rapture in the end, um, some that there would be some kind of intense persecution uh, at the end, um, I'm curious, just in the way that you understand the tribulation from your perspective, it, it almost sounded like you really still believe, and, and I want to make sure I'm understanding this right, that there still is an actual, not just symbolic, intense time of persecution where Christians will have to go underground, as you were talking about. Is, is that what you foresee 
in the end? Yeah, I do. I see that now the persecution is selective. It's scattered throughout the church mm-hmm. age. I agree with what Tom Schreiner said, that the persecution, the great tribulation began in the first century. And I asked students, I said, okay, what's a greater sign of the great tribulation? Apocalyptic locusts flying around and stinking, stinging people and hundred pound hailstones? And he said, yeah, that, that's pretty bad. I said, okay, how about the God man dying at the cross? Could, could that be a candidate? for the beginning of the Great Tribulation. I know that doesn't compare with locusts and with 100-pound hail, but could that? Could that? I, th- I think it does compare, and I think Jesus began to undergo the Great Tribulation in fulfillment of Daniel, which predicted the Tribulation. Remember, he's the Son of Man. And it says the Son of Man in Daniel 7 it also represents the people of God, and they must suffer tribulation before a kingdom. And so Jesus begins to fulfill that, and then we fulfill it in Him. Now, I'll stop there, but I think Revelation 3.10 needs to be discussed perhaps at some point, which is the key text for uh, the academic premillennialists like Dan Wallace and others for a pre-tribulation rapture, but I'll stop. I'm talking, yeah. doing a beal time here. <laughs> That's good. And, and I, I think we agree. I think there is an in, there's suffering that characterizes this present evil age, but that suffering intensifies near the consummation. So I, I think that's a right reading of the New Testament. And, but, and, but it's not a seven-year period. We yeah. can't, we can't uh, you know, define it in such a way. Right, right. And it's a cruciform. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a Christotelic kind of tribulation because mm-hmm. Jesus underwent his final demise, didn't he? And then rose. We follow the Lamb wherever he goes. The corporate body of Christ has to undergo a final demise as a corporate body of yeah. Christ. And then they, they're raised. Just following the pattern of Jesus. And Tom, you you pastored a church for many years, and um, I'm I'm just curious, what kind of uh, encouragement do you give your congregation as, you know, we've just seen some small forms of tribulation, I think, right now in the United States, in comparison to the great tribulations that we see being experienced by Christians around the world. How do you encourage them in the face of tribulation, how do you speak to them in light of the coming tribulation? Um, you did a great job of it here, but do you have any counsel that you would offer? Well, I, I think one of the main things I, I would just say generally that we can do as pastors and teachers and ministers is to teach people that such suffering does happen and will happen because I think health, wealth, gospel in this present evil age, there can be a tendency among American Christians that where we begin to think that's not going to happen to me i'm not going to suffer if 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 god if god is pleased with me and i'm walking with him life will go well so i think pastorally one of the key things we can do and i hope i did this is to remind people regularly you're you're going to suffer uh how you'll suffer i don't know some people suffer more intensely than others so that we pre- we prepare ourselves with the expectation. It's not a surprise. You know, it's not a, my, my wife had a major accident and almost died. I, I wasn't, I mean, I was surprised at the moment, but I didn't, I didn't experience anything like, why did that happen to me? Right. I, because that didn't surprise me. Because why, God never promised my, that life would just flow nicely every second. So, so we're prepared. We're prepared that we'll suffer, and then, and then, of course, we have the promises of God, don't we? That He'll strengthen us, that His Spirit is with us, that He'll give us courage and strength and faith, 
and, and, and we want to preach and teach those things to our people. I trust I did that. Yeah. Well, you can ask some of our church members out here if I did, <laughs> former church members. Yeah, yeah, yeah very good. Yeah. Um, somebody had also asked a number of people about uh, the Bema seat and how it fits into all of this and final judgment. Um, and in particular, you know, understanding the nature of the gospel and what Christ has done for us, how do we understand what will be judged by on the final day? Um, and what the sort of the benefits of, of what it means to be faithful will look like. I mean, are there tangible rewards? Uh, what is that? How does that flesh out? That might be a lot to ask in one question, Dr. Beal, but would you give a go at it? Well, I know Tom has uh, thought through that uh, quite well as it relates to justification, and um, I've given some thought to it as well. And I think a passage that immediately comes to my mind is 2 Corinthians 5, which, um, which says... <clears throat> That verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. And um, so what is going on there? Well, I I think that there is going to be a final judgment. Uh, Unbelievers will be judged. And uh, believers, Paul's speaking to the covenant community here, which the visible earthly community is made up of pseudo-believers and genuine believers, all will come to the judgment seat of Christ. And those who have not truly trusted in Jesus and been declared righteous with Jesus' righteousness, who have not done that, they'll be judged by their deeds. Those who have, yes, they'll be judged by their deeds, but in Christ... And their deeds will be seen as that which inevitably uh, flow out of their justified relationship with Jesus. I do not see this talking about, some take this to mean, well, they're unspiritual believers and they'll be judged by their deeds. Uh, They won't get the rewards, but those who are faithful will get rewards. I don't think this is talking about that. In fact, I don't see that in Paul. Some think chapter 3 is about that. I, I won't mention it now. Will, if somebody wants to talk to me afterwards. But I think that um, uh, the great reward for Paul and for believers that Paul talks about is salvation, not particular rewards. Because after all, those are by the sovereign grace of God. It's not like, I have more jewels in my crown because look at me. If there are rewards, then you can say, I have more jewels in my crown because it had nothing to do with me. But um, I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I, 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 I fundamentally agree. I would just want to say what I think is what Greg said as well. Our, I think our good works are necessary for salvation. But in what sense are they necessary? That's a crucial question. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think they're a necessary basis or foundation since we all sin. We all fall short. James Chapter 3, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways, and stumble there means sin. If you compare it to James chapter 2, verse 10, patio, it means to sin. We all, and he's speaking to Christians, he's including himself. We all stumble, we all <clears throat> sin in many ways. That's right after James has talked about the necessity of works for justification. So obviously he's not talking about perfection in 2.14 through 26, but he is talking about a significant 
I think, observable, discernible change in one's life. And so I think we can say those good works are a necessary fruit or evidence of our new life in Christ. And, and, and I, I think there's, in some segments of evangelicalism, whether there are rewards or not, that what amazes me is there can be such an excitement over rewards, which if they're there, it's talked about very little, rewards above and beyond eternal life. Mm-hmm. When, when, the, when the prize in the New Testament is eternal life itself. Mm-hmm. I, I like to relate this to Costco or Sam's Club. You have to buy a card once a year, you get the card. And uh, you pay your money to get it once a year. Now, when you go into Sam's Club or Costco, if you don't have your card, you either have to go to the front desk, get a temporary card, or go back to your car and get it. Is it the card that gets you in? No, it's not really. It's the money you pay. So works are like the card. Uh, you have to have it to get in, but ultimately it's the money that Christ paid that uh, is the basis for that. So. Yeah. Which is another way of saying it's ultimately the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us or credited to us or, or counted to us. So there's places where we see in Scripture, um, you know, sacrifice of mother or father to be repaid a hundredfold and that sort of thing. Uh, we would say that that's really um, figurative language. It's just speaking about it being worth it, you know, uh, leaving all to follow Jesus. And is that what we're getting at? Well, I would say, yeah, okay. myself. Okay. But there are among Reformed people, there are some who, who hold the rewards. Um, and uh, it has to do with the, a parabolic passage in the Gospels and, uh, and 1 Corinthians 3, when it, you narrow it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay, very good. Um, and I uh, wanted to um, ask a question about your view towards what happens to Israel um, in the end. And you, you kind of talked a little mm-hmm. bit about this, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. maybe just um, speaking briefly on how you understand the Bible to speak of the, the future of Israel. Briefly? Mm. <laughs> Let's start with Tom. Well, <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if, I, if we explain it briefly, because it is, it is a long discussion, I have... Uh, I mean, I have many good friends. I mean, it's, let's just say, we're talking about Romans eleven twenty six. I think. Yeah. All, all yeah. Israel shall be saved. What does that mean? So there are some, right, just to lay out the land, there are some who believe that that refers to both, that Israel there, all Israel refers to both Jewish and Gentile believers. And, and, and you can, John Calvin believed that, for example, uh, and, and, and other interpreters in the history of the church. I think there are texts in the New Testament in Paul where Israel does refer to the church, Galatians 6.16. So I think that's a possible reading of Romans 11.26. Given the flow of the context there, I'm not convinced of that. Even the verse right before that, I think, is still talking about ethnic Israel. But it's a possible reading and in some ways an attractive reading. Uh, another view, and I think this is Greg's view, is that when he says all Israel shall be saved, it's the salvation of ethnic Israel all throughout history, the salvation of a remnant. And, and if you want to read about that, of course, you could read in uh, Greg Beale's writings. But uh, a friend of mine, Ben Merkel, who teaches at Southeastern Seminary, he has a nice article in JATS, the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, where he explains that view. And and uh, many people hold that view. 
Um, I still hold the, the third view that he's speaking of an end time salvation of ethnic Israel, probably at the second coming of Jesus, at or near the second coming of Jesus, in which there will be a, a, a salvation of ethnic Israel through believing in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, not apart from faith in Christ, not a salvation for all Israelites who ever lived. Some people hold that view. Some people even think that verse is saying all Israel will be saved apart from faith in Christ. I don't think the text is saying that. I think it is saying all Israel shall be saved uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. Every one of those views has some difficulties at the end of the day. But I think, I, I think I'd argue if we're just speaking somewhat generally, I think the way Paul sets up the discussion in Romans 11, that he's coming to something more climactic than simply saying what he said in Romans 9 in the beginning of Romans 11, that it's a salvation of the remnant all through history. That he's thinking, that he's thinking of a fulfillment that is greater than what he's talked about in the previous passages. I would say the salvation of a remnant is an indication and a, and a promise of something greater to come. And, and the way, is it Romans 11, 15 or 11, 12? I don't remember the exact verse now, but when the, the fullness of Israel leads to life from the dead, I think that verse is saying the final salvation of Israel climactically leads to the resurrection the consummation of all history. Well, there's so many other things we could say, but we've got to give Greg a chance to weigh in here. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, literally, if I may use the word literal, um, (laughs) the text says, and in this manner, not in then all Israel will be saved, but and in this manner all Israel will be saved. So, of course... Well, what manner? Well, you have to go to verse 25. And in verse 25, it says, I don't want you to be puffed up within yourselves uh, uh, about this, you know, but th- there's a mystery. And, and he says that during the church age, uh, there's a partial hardening of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And in this manner, all Israel will be saved. Well, partial hardening of Israel, what that means is, the majority, all right? So let me paraphrase it again. Basically, the mystery is that a majority of Israel will be hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. In other words, during the church age, there is only a remnant of the salvation of ethnic Israel. Only a remnant of ethnic Israelites are being saved throughout the church age, according to verse 25. Verse 26, and in this manner... All Israel will be saved. In what manner? In a remnant-saving way. I don't think... Now, I know that that, that Tom and and, and Douglas Moo think there's an impression to building up to a climax. I think the climax is emphatic on the remnant myself. It depends on how you understand that climax. What does fullness mean, by the way? When it says in verse 25 that the fullness of... Uh, the Gentiles will come in. Does that mean the majority of Gentiles throughout the church age will come in? No. That means that um, basically the church is going to be predominantly Gentile, but that the fullness really represents 
a remnant of Gentiles throughout the whole earth. It's not the majority of Gentiles. So fullness of Israel earlier, I think, that we, we, we ought to go by the clearer text that talks about fullness of Gentiles. Well, how about fullness of Israel? I think, again, it's remnant. And when it says in, in this manner, in a remnant-saving manner, all ethnic Israel, that is all Israel throughout the church age, will be saved, that phrase will be saved in Greek, sothesitai, is found in chapter 9. And there it says, though Israel be like the sands of the sea, quoting Isaiah 10, though Israel be like the sands of the sea, only a remnant, sothesitai. So it's already, it's begun, and it'll be consummated. Likewise, chapter 10, the very famous statements where I became a believer in Christ, 18 years old. Uh, it, it, it says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, sothesitai, will be saved. Now, in that case, it's Jew and Gentile, but here's the point. It's an inaugurated salvation. And it's both attached to Old Testament quotations. And so is Romans eleven twenty six. immediately uh, following uh, that statement, so Israel will be saved. It's quoting uh, the Old Testament. And so I think will be saved is already a not yet, not purely something remaining for the future. I have many more things to say, but you could not bear them now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys so much for this panel. Um, It's about time to move on, but we really appreciate this. This has been, I think, super helpful.